Our scripture text this morning is from Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 25. Please turn there with me uh, in your pew Bibles, page 644. Lamentations chapter 3, verses 19 through 25. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. This is God's word for the people of Riverside Baptist Church. And thank you, worship team, for a great time of worship today. Lamentations chapter 3, the prophet's journey from grief to hope. As we think about the fact of being in despair and discouragement, I heard the story about the phrase, don't despair. There was a nun sitting by the window of her convent, and as Sister Barbara opened up a letter from her family, she was, opened it up and was reading, and there was a $100 bill in there. So she just smiled at, at the gesture that they gave her $100. Well, as she read the letter, she noticed outside her window there was a, a stranger, a shabbily dressed stranger, down leaning up against a lamppost down below her window. So she quickly wrote a, a little note, Don't despair, Sister Barbara. And she wrapped it up with the $100 bill and threw it out to the guy. Well, the guy picked it up, and with a puzzled look on his face, he, he, he tipped his hat and went on down the street. Well, the next day, Sister Barbara uh, was told that this man was down at the, at the door knocking, frantically knocking to see her, wanted to see her personally, had to talk to her personally. So she went downstairs, and without a word, this stranger gave her a wad, a huge wad of $100 bills. She said, what's this? Well, that's the $8,000 you've come, sister. Don't despair, paid, paid eighty-one. 80 to 1. Y'all get that in a minute. The title of our book today is Lamentations. It's derived from the translation of the Bible called the Septuagint. The idea of the title conveys loud cries. The, the Hebrew title comes from chapter 1, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, and chapter 4, verse 1. The word how. It, it, it conveys an expression of dismay. How can this be happening? Uh, in the Greek, it's the word lament. The Greek, the word lament. Now, there are no other books in the whole Word of God that is only of laments. It's the only book that's all laments. Psalms has a lot of laments in it. But there's, there's only seven chapters in the book of Psalms that are laments. This whole book is all laments. In fact, the, the commentator used it, uh, one commentator called it a distressful dirge 
marking the funeral of the once beautiful city of Jerusalem. Listen to what chapter 2 verse 15 of Jeremiah says. All who pass along the way clap their hands at you. They hiss and wag their heads at the daughter of Jerusalem. Is this a city that was called the perfection of beauty, the joy of the whole earth? The psalmist wrote this in Psalm 48 describing Jerusalem. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised in the city of our God, in the mountain of his holiness. Beautiful for situation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great king. Jerusalem was always special to God because it's his chosen place in the whole world. The book, this book teaches all believers how to deal with suffering. Suffering is something that everybody goes through at one time or another. And this book teaches us how to deal with suffering. Now, although the, the author of Lamentations is not named within the book, internal and historical evidence and indications tell us that it is Jeremiah. For David, God told Jeremiah to lament. In Jeremiah 7, 29, God said this, Cut off your hair, cast it away, Raise a lamentation on the bare heights, for the Lord has rejected and forsaken the generation of his wrath. He also lamented over King Josiah, who was one of the good kings, one of the four good kings in the southern kingdom. For at this time, Israel had been split to a northern kingdom, which was known as Israel, the southern kingdom, which was known as Judah. And Jerusalem was in the southern kingdom. And Josiah was one of the good kings. And in 2 Chronicles 35, we see these words. Jeremiah also uttered a lament for Josiah, and all the singing men and singing women have spoken of Josiah in their laments to this day, that they, made, that they made these a rule in Israel. Behold, they are written in the laments. So Jeremiah was an eyewitness to the destruction of Judah because of their rebellion against God. They disobeyed God. They rebelled against God. This prophet stood and preached for over 40 years. He prophesied of the coming judgment of God. And not one person responded to that call. Can you imagine a preacher preaching for 40 years and not one convert? That's, that's, that's just beyond my comprehension. The only thing he got was scorn from the people. They wagged their finger at him. They laughed at him. They made fun of him. Lamentations is a concentration of details of the bitter suffering and heartbreak that took place in those days. Now it's interesting that Lamentations is sandwiched between Ezekiel and Jeremiah. They are both prophetic in nature. But Lamentations is poetic. That's very interesting. The book is organized in a very unusual way. The Hebrew alphabet has 22 letters, unlike ours has 26 Lamentations 1, 2, and 4 form an acrostic, each having 22 verses, and each, beginning with one of the, each verse beginning with one of the Hebrew letters of the alphabet. Chapter 3 consists of 66 verses, and these verses are form, form a triad. Each group of triads use one of the letters of the 22 letters of the alphabet. Chapter 5 does not follow this acrostic plan, but still has 22 verses. So the real interest of this book is the content, as it is a study in the sorrow or a hymn of heartbreak. Now on the screen, we have some scripture that is the background of 
the book of Lamentations, found in 2 Kings 24 and 25 and 2 Chronicles 36. You follow along as I read. The Lord sent Jehoiakim, king of Judah, bands of the Chaldeans and bands of the Syrians, bands of the Moabites and bands of the Ammonites, and sent them against Judah to destroy it according to the word of the Lord by his servants the prophets. This came upon Judah at the command of the Lord. The Chaldeans killed the young men with the sword in the house of their sanctuary and had no compassion on young man or virgin, old man or aged. He gave, the, he gave them all into their hand. All the vessels of the house of God and the treasures of the house of the Lord, which Solomon, king of Israel, had made as the Lord had foretold. The treasures of the king and of his princes, all these they took to Babylon. Ten thousand captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest of the people of the land. They burned the house of God and broke down the wall of Jerusalem and burned all its palaces with fire and destroyed all its precious vessels. Can you see why Jeremiah is so upset and lamenting about the destruction of his hometown, Jerusalem. Chapter 1 of Lamentations is a description of the utter depths of sorrow, a sense of abandonment. Listen to a few of these phrases that Jeremiah uses. He said, I weep. The comforter is far from me. My children are desolate. Enemy, the enemy has prevailed. In chapter 2, it gives us a description of the thoroughness of judgment by God using Nebuchadnezzar. Now, it's interesting that God, Jeremiah does not blame the Chaldeans, but he attributes the destruction to God. Listen to these words. The Lord swallowed up without mercy all the inhabitants. Another verse. He cut down in anger all the mighty in Israel. Chapter 3. Now, these 66 verses speak of their own reaction, his own reaction and the, the personal pain he felt. Uh, look at the first few verses of chapter 3. I'm a man who's seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. Verse 4. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He's broken my bones. Verse 6. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. Verse 7. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made me my chains heavy. Though I cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. Then in chapter 4. Jeremiah describes Jeremiah, it's his attitude, he describes his own attitude of unbelief as he remembers all that has happened. For in chapter 4, look at verse 10. This is, this is really sick. The hands of compassionate women have boiled their own children. They became food during the destruction of their daughter of my own people. And yes, that's exactly what happened that day. Food was so scarce that mothers would boil their own children. Look at verse 14. They wandered blind through the streets. They were so defiled with blood that no one was able to touch their garments. Verse 22. The punishment of your iniquity, O daughter of Zion, is accomplished. He will keep you in exile no longer. But your iniquity, O daughter of Edom, he will punish. He will uncover your sins. And then in chapter 5 is a description of Jeremiah's complete and utter disgrace at the judgment. Look at verse 1. Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us. Look and see our disgrace. Look down at verse 5. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are weary. 
we are given no rest. So on and on it goes. Now on the screen there are three pictures. How many of you remember September 11, 2001? Remember that? I remember hearing the beginnings of this attack on the radio as I was going to work at Word of Life this particular day. As the day progressed, more and more devastation happened. We know later the towers were attacked and then the Pentagon and then the, the massive plane crash out in the country in Pennsylvania. Well, I found it interesting that these two towers in New York, well, they, they, they were 110 stories tall. They were nearly 10 million square feet of office space for 430 companies. Each contained 99 elevators and 21,800 windows. How would you like to have to wash all of those? Each floor was an acre in size, and there was enough concrete in these towers to build a sidewalk from New York City to Washington, D.C. They officially opened in 1972. They were the icons of people going into, entering into Manhattan. How many of you have been to Manhattan and seen the towers before? I've never had the privilege of seeing it, but a lot of people have. As you sat and watched this devastation happening, on, on just almost as you, as you could see it happening as it was going on, there were probably many different emotions that were going on in your heart and your mind and your soul. Thousands of people lost their lives, as well as many uh, hundreds and hundreds of first responders that were responding to people in help that needed help. This is probably as close as we would ever get to seeing what Jeremiah felt on the, day that, the days that he watched the destruction of Jerusalem. It's no wonder Jesus sat on the hillside one day and looked down over Jerusalem and uttered these words, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers, how often I have wanted to gather you, to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath his wings, but you would not let me. Jesus knew that Jerusalem was a very special place, but he also knew that Jerusalem had rebelled against God. So the first thing I want us to see today as we look into our passage of Scripture is the prophet's grief and guilt. The prophet's grief and guilt. Now, the first item I want to look at is the prophet's affliction. Verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3. I won't read all of them, but just starting in verse uh, 6 or verse 5. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like a dead long ago. He has walled me up about so I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stone. He has made my paths crooked. So the first thing about the prophet's grief and guilt is the prophet's affliction. Discouragement is one of the great emotions that all of us entertain at one time or another. How many of you have ever been discouraged before? I have, many times. Everywhere we turn today, it seems like the only talk that's going on is the number of new COVID-19 cases, or the, how many stores were looted and burned the night before, or, or which new statue has been defaced or taken down. It's no wonder that Jeremiah was in a funk of discouragement and despair. Chapter 2 tells us this. The Lord destroyed every home, wall, palace, and gate that existed in Jerusalem. 
Jeremiah smells the stench of decaying bodies. In chapter 2, he said, I smell the stench of decaying bodies after the slaying of the population. A once bustling city full of people is now deserted. It's now deserted. It reminds me of pictures after the COVID-19 thing came and, and they made the orders for everybody to stay in place at home. Do you remember seeing pictures of New York City? It was just totally bare. Nobody there, especially in Times Square. Normally that place has got thousands of people all the time. But there was no one there. That's what Jeremiah was picturing here. He also goes on in chapter 2. He, he said, I see the people who were once fully stocked and well-fed, now destitute and starving. Otherwise, he wouldn't have made mention of the fact that mothers killing babies for food. As Jeremiah walked the streets of devastation, he saw nothing but ruin and devastation and destruction. Jeremiah, his words were chosen very carefully, very carefully as he penned this lament. For in chapter 3, Jeremiah uses these words. I am a man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He says, he has driven me into darkness without any light. He says, though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. It's no wonder, no wonder that Jeremiah was enduring a time of affliction. These are the worst bad days anyone could ever imagine. So now if we've seen the prophet's affliction, let's see God as an adversary, starting in verse 10 of chapter 3. He's a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me into pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target. He drove, me and drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughingstock of all the peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. And on and on it goes. Some of these words were, some of these phrases were interesting. He's a bear lying in wait. Now, if you've ever seen a documentary, documentary of a bear waiting, you know, they are, their hearing is very keen, their smell is very keen. And they have a lot of speed and a lot of strength. So when they attack their prey, it's, it's, it's so quick and powerful. They don't even know what hit them. Then he says, it's, it's like, not only like a bear, but a lion in hiding. We know a lion is very stealthy. They hide in the grass, the tall grass. And then when the prey gets close enough, they pounce out on the prey. And their strength and power comes evident when not only one of them does it, but many in the pride gather together. Then another phrase, he said, he bent his bow and sent me as a target for his arrow, like a master archer, a master archer, because the next phrase tells us that a master archer never misses his, his mark. He says, the arrows of his quiver drove into my kidneys. Then he says, he has filled me with bitterness. He has filled me with wormwood. Now, wormwood is a, 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 a vine-type plant that has silky-type leaves but droopy yellow flowers. It over, grows over in Europe. And it's, it's got a very exceptionally bitter oil that comes out that's processed from this. But the picture here is, it means that that is very grievous or that is very bitter. And that's what he's, he's experiencing under the hand of God. This bitterness, this, this, this grievous nature. Who wants an adversary like this one? I don't. It's kind of like being in a dark room. 
being in a dark room. You know, if you develop photographs, if you've ever seen someone do it, or maybe you've done it yourself, the, far, the film must be taken into a dark room. Only after the chemicals have done their work is it safe to expose the film to the light. Now, the light would have, if done too early, would destroy the images on the film. But now it brings out its beauty. God, from time to time, takes us into his dark room. These experiences are used to develop our spiritual life. As we pass through the trial and sorrow and frustration and disappointment, the image of Christ is produced in us. Then we are ready to be displayed in the light. Too often we blame people and circumstances for things going on in our life, when in reality it's God. Now these may, the, the people may be secondary, but God uses them to take us into his dark room. Are you in God's dark room today? And if you are, you think, well, when am I going to get out of this place? There's no end in sight. Don't despair. Don't, don't, don't lose hope. Because there's coming a day when God knows, only, only God knows when that time is, when it's time to reveal you to the light. For if you try to go into the light too soon, guess what? It ruins that image that God is trying to make in your life. It ruins that image. So wait for his perfect timing. So we see here that Jeremiah is full of discouragement and despair. And God is an adversary. In the midst of all this horrendous storm, everything is falling apart. But then, in verse 21, we have these words. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. When all seems lost... Jeremiah found hope in the same place where he was seeing judgment. So we see the prophet's guilt and grief. Secondly, I want you to see God's mercy and faithfulness, verses 19 to 25. The prophet's rising hope in God's help, verses 19 and 20. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. Here we see Jeremiah's sinking soul. He said, I'm remembering my affliction. I remember my roaming around. Have you ever been, sometimes you can't sleep at night and you just kind of get up and just walk around just because you just can't go to sleep? That's what Jeremiah is experiencing here. Now it's interesting, Jeremiah didn't try to use the power of positive thinking to get, him, get himself out of this, to deal with this. He remembered it so he could understand it for what it was. And not pretend it wasn't there. There's some people today that, well, you know, I'm going through it. I'm just not going to claim that. That's not a part. I'm not, uh-uh, not me. Listen, God is a sovereign God. And he's going to do what he has to do when he needs to do it to get your attention. And to take you to the place where he wants you to be. So God can reveal Christ in you. Jeremiah had that sinking feeling. He had gone to the bottom of the barrel. The bottom of the barrel. And Jeremiah is not sugarcoating what's going on here. Not at all. Listen, when a person, person becomes a believer, when they become a believer in, in Christ, life is not always a bed of roses. I like what one person said. We can complain because rose bushes have thorns or rejoice because thorns have roses. Think about that. Which way are you going to look at it? So the prophet's rising hope in God's help. But then in verses 21 to 23... 
we have the prophet's complete trust in God. Look at verse 21. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. In the middle of this great lament, in the middle of this carefully constructed poem, Jeremiah found God in the middle of the storm. Has that ever, have you ever experienced that before? You think things are so dark, no hope, nothing, and all of a sudden, God's there? I imagine that's what the three Hebrew children felt. The day that they were going to be thrown into the fiery furnace, heated seven times hotter than it had ever been heated before. It was so hot that it leaped out and killed those who put them in it. As they walking through the fire, I see there was three, one, two, three, but I see a fourth. I see a fourth man. He's not just any man. He's like the Son of God. Listen, when you go through the times of trial and despair and discouragement, that fourth man is always there. Jesus Christ is always there with you. The first thing we see in verse 22 is this. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. It never ceases. How simple, but yet how rich if we fully appreciate that. When you're down for the count, it seems hard to remember these things sometimes. But when, when things in life are not going our way, when things just seem to go completely awry... We tend to blame God. I like what Charlie Chaplin said. You'll never find a rainbow if you're always looking down. The only way you can see a rainbow is to look up. And again, that's one of God's great promises. Jeremiah set for us a great example. When life was not proceeding as Jeremiah wanted it to for himself or for his country... He chose not to focus on the destruction and the despair, but focus on that which he already knew but had forgotten. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. This refers to the many acts of love and kindness and goodness and faithfulness to us from God. In the darkest hour imaginable, Jeremiah focuses on God's goodness and mercy. God's goodness and mercy. And it's no coincidence that Jeremiah saved this verse for the very middle of his book. The middle of this poetic genius. The message, this message should be in the middle of our lives. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. Someone asked a question one time, why did the Lord not furnish enough manna for Israel for one year at a time? Let me answer that by telling you a little parable. There was once a king that had a son, and to the son he would give a yearly allowance, paying him the entire sum at one time, one time a year. Well, soon it became the time that the only time the king ever saw his son was that time when he gave him that yearly allowance. So the king changed the plan, and he gave to the son that which was sufficient only for that day. So then the son visited the father every morning, every morning. He needed his father's unbroken love. He needed his father's companionship. He needed his father's wisdom in giving. So God dealt with Israel and us. His mercies are new every morning. Listen, the word mercy is one that deserves some attention. It's God's patience in action. 
Aren't you glad God is a patient God? Because if he wasn't, we'd be in a whole lot of trouble. God extends patience to us who really deserve punishment. God doesn't owe us mercy, but God extends to us kindness and grace. For in Psalms 85 verse 10, we have this verse. Mercy and faithfulness meet. Righteousness and peace kiss each other. Mercy and peace form the bookends of God's qualities, expressing his compassion on sinners. And in the middle, we have these two words, faithfulness and righteousness. These two demand punishment for sin. But the grace of God harmonizes all of this with a kiss that seals it. Just like in the day when you get married, you seal your vows with what? A kiss. God seals that kiss. With righteousness and peace, they kiss each other. Mercy, faithfulness, righteousness, and peace. He deals with our sin in a very righteous manner. Aren't you glad? Because if he gave us what we really deserved, we would be in hell. We'd be bound for hell. There must be an abundance of faith to focus on God's great mercy, His steadfast love, even when we don't feel it. Have you ever walked someday or or lived a certain day and you think, well, where's God today in all of this? Where's God? Listen, God does not change. He loved you completely yesterday. He loves you completely today. And He will continue to love you completely tomorrow. Think about this. It's great to know that when tomorrow comes, it's today. Think about that for a second. When tomorrow comes, it's today. We don't have to worry about yesterday. It's already gone. We don't have to worry about tomorrow because it hasn't got here yet. All we need to worry about is today. Today. So therefore, we have these words in verse 21. I call this to mind. What to mind? God's miraculous, steadfast love. And because of that. I have hope. As we continue to think about God's mercy, we see God's unending mercy. There's a couple of things about that I want you to see. Number one, his mercy is new. For it says in verse 23, they are new. His mercies are new every morning. God is faithful and will not cast his people off forever. There may be periods of time when things come our way, but God will never do it forever. The steadfast love or mercy of the Lord is great and abides in times of trouble and divine judgment. Even though Israel strayed away from God and committed spiritual adultery, he, stopped, he never stopped loving her. He disciplined her, but he never stopped loving her. If you want a great example of that, read the book of Hosea. God told Hosea, one of the great prophets of God, go and marry a harlot, a prostitute. God, what? Marry a prostitute? Are you sure? Yes, Hosea, go marry a prostitute. He did. He followed God's command. He went and married a prostitute. Yes, that prostitute stayed with him for a little while, but then she eventually went back to the lifestyle she had before of committing adultery, going with other men. But instead of divorcing her, instead of leaving her, God told Hosea, Hosea, you go and take her back. Because of Hosea's undying love for his wife, he went and took her back. 
Because of God's unfailing love for Israel, for Jerusalem, He brought them back. He brought them back. In fact, history teaches us, God's Word teaches us that one day He's going to bring them all back to to their land. And guess what? In 1948, what happened? Israel was declared as a nation again. His mercy is perpetual and always available. So we see the prophets rising hope in God's help and his complete trust in God. Mercy is not only new, but mercy is unfailing. This usage can also be translated as the word compassion. This is a tender love. It's the same word used in Isaiah 63, verse 7. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord, according to all that the Lord has granted us, and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Listen, God's mercy has no expiration date. Have you ever bought a, a, quart of, a, a container of milk? Taking it home, used it, used it, used it. And one day you go to pour it out and ends up pouring out yogurt instead of milk. <laughs> Chunks. You ever had that happen? Listen, everything we buy today has an expiration date. But I'm here to tell you with unwavering confidence and faith, God's mercy never fails. It does not have an expiration date. These statements about God's mercy are related to the next statement about God's faithfulness. But I want to take just a minute and talk about a, a couple examples of God's mercy, new and unfailing mercy. Think about Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve, God covered their shame with skins of animals for an animal sacrifice. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. They, they sinned against God. So God covered their sin. Think about Israel's mercy seat. The mercy seat is the place where God would meet with the high priest on Israel's behalf once a year. The Septuagint translation is translated as the word propitiation. Christ became the once-for-all acceptable uh, wrath-satisfying sacrifice on our behalf. The propitiation for our sins. 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Those are powerful words. Another example is... God's new and unfailing mercy is in our salvation. Listen to these words. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved through faith. It is the gift of God. And even in the midst of COVID and crisis and chaos, God is in command. Depend on Him to do what is right. God has a plan. Listen, watch for Him to work. He's going to do something special through all of this, I guarantee you. God will provide. You've got to trust Him to deliver in His time, in His way. God has a mission. Declare His truth abroad. We are to take His truth, this steadfast love, this mercy, and declare it abroad. God has a prescription for he is, he is the great physician. Praise him for what he will do. Don't only praise him for what he's going to do and what he has done, but praise him for what he will do. Pray expecting God to do something. 
Well, let's talk about God's great faithfulness. We talked about the mercy is connected. Let's talk about God's great faithfulness. The greatness of God's faithfulness. God placed his power, reliability, and credibility on the line thousands of years ago when he came to a man by the name of Abraham, who was 100 years old, and to his wife Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, said, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a son. Abraham, the Bible tells us Abraham fell on his face and laughed. The Bible also says that Sarah laughed also. Her laugh was more of that of unbelief. Now, during the time of waiting for the promise to be fulfilled, their faith grew and grew. And we know Sarah conceived and bore a son that God promised them. God was truly faithful in that. The Old Testament word for faithfulness is related to the word truth. Both come from the same root meaning. John, in the book of Revelation, said, God's words are faithful and true in Revelation 21. Then he goes on, he described Jesus as the faithful and true witness. And then later in the book of Revelation, he said, his title will be faithful and true. God's attributes are always operating in union with each other. Never apart, never in isolation. God's character demands that he is consistent with his mercy and his judgment. He always follows through with his promises. For in Jeremiah 18, 7 and 8, God tells us that the nation that is evil will endure destruction. But if that nation repents and turns from evil, God will have mercy. This is God's faithfulness in action. Listen to Psalm 89, 8. O Lord, God of hosts, who is mighty as you are. O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you. Deuteronomy 7, 9. Know therefore that the Lord God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. Joshua 21, 45. No one word of all good, the good promises of the Lord has made to the house of Israel has failed. All come to pass. So what about the extent of God's faithfulness? The extent of God's faithfulness. Number one, he's faithful in assuring our salvation. We read it this morning. But Romans 8. Because those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. That his son would be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Listen, what that means is... We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And one glorious day, we'll be saved from the very presence of sin. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. We have been justified, sanctified, and one day we will be glorified. So he's faithful in assuring our salvation. Secondly, he's faithful in providing our victory. For in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have these words. No trial is taken you that is not faced by others. God is faithful. He will not let you be tried beyond that what you're able to bear. But with the trial, he also has provided a way out so that you may be able to endure it. Listen, in the same book, 1 Corinthians, but in chapter 15, it says the perishable must put on the imperishable. The mortal must put on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? Listen, he is faithful in our victory. He is faithful also in forgiving our sins. For in 1 John 1, we have these words. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. 
We are forgiven on the basis of his righteousness. Jesus paid the price for our sins, but we're also forgiven on the basis of his faithfulness. It said another way in Jeremiah 31, the, the new covenant. People will no longer need to teach their neighbors and relatives to know me. For all of them, from the least important to the most important, will know me, says the Lord. For I will forgive their sin and will no longer call their, to mind the wrong they have done. Because of his mercy and forgiveness, we can have a personal, intimate relationship with the sovereign God that sometimes takes us through trial and testing. If you don't have a personal relationship with God, then you have no hope in life. He's faithful in sustaining us through suffering. We see that in the book of Lamentations. And the people in Jerusalem were probably beginning to think that God had forgotten them. For in 722 B.C., Israel, the northern kingdom, had been taken into captivity. And in 586 B.C., Jerusalem was taken into captivity. In 1 Peter, we have these words. So then let those who suffer according to the will of God entrust their souls to the faithful creator as they do good. God's plan for our lives is to accomplish his perfect purposes through our suffering. So let's look at the encouragement of God's faithfulness. The encouragement of God's faithfulness. The greatest encouragement one can have is a person making the promise is always faithful in keeping that promise. We have many, many different promises in the Bible from God. Not one of which has been left unfulfilled. Hebrews 10. And let us hold unwaveringly to the hope that we confess for the one who made the promise is trustworthy. 2 Corinthians 1.20 for every one of God's promises are yes in him. Therefore, also through him, the amen is spoken to the glory we give to God. So that is the encouragement of God's promise. Now, let's talk a second about a couple of examples of God's faithfulness. Think about Noah. God saved Noah and his family from the destruction of the flood via an ark. Can you imagine that day? Never seen a boat before. Never seen rain before. Noah, I want you to build an ark. What's an ark, Gord? Okay. And God showed him what an ark was. Noah, I'm going to destroy the world through a flood. What's a flood? It's going to rain. What's rain? Because the Bible tells us at that time, there'd never been rain on the earth. Only a mist from the earth had come up to water the ground. Things that he'd never seen before. God says, I'm going to preserve you and your family. How about to the son of Abraham called Ishmael? Ishmael. He wasn't the promised son. But listen to what God told Abraham. And Abraham said to him, Oh, that Ishmael might live before you. Then God said, No, Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants forever. As for Ishmael... I have heard you. I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget 12 princes and I will make him a great nation. Ishmael's blessing is with us today for all the Arabic people in Saudi Arabia are those who can trace their lineage back to Ishmael. How about to Moses? God says, I'm going to spare, I'm going to, I'm going to deliver the Israelites 
and you're the one that's going to do it. What? Me? God protected Moses. He preserved Moses as a baby from being slaughtered. Pharaoh's daughter found him floating in that little boat that his mom made. She raised him. For 40 years, he was there in the kingdom of Egypt. Then he was exiled. God spent another 40 years training him to lead his people out. And then finally, for the next 40, he was leading God's people. He was faithful to Moses. How about to Jacob? God affirms his everlasting covenant to Israel when he says this, He is the Lord our God. He remembers his covenant forever. The covenant he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, To you, to you, I will give the land of Canaan and to your portion as your portion forever. Now listen, let me bring it to where we are today. God's faithfulness to Riverside Baptist Church. Listen, he's preserved Riverside for 145 years. Think about that. We're the oldest Baptist church in Pasco County. 145 years. God has faithfully led us from where we were on Perrine Ranch Road to this place in downtown Newport Ritchie seven years ago. And to my knowledge, God has protected Riverside. Not one single person in our church has gotten sick from COVID-19 that I know of. So during the chaos in the world, God has continued to bless Riverside. God's faithfulness is great. His mercies are new. And they endure forever. On the screen, you have a picture of a gentleman by the name of Thomas Obadiah Chisholm. Born in July 29, 1866. He never went to high school. He had a very difficult early life. His health was so fragile that he had periods of time when he was confined to bed. He couldn't work. And between bouts of illness and, and just not being able to do things, he had to push himself for the extra hours and various jobs to make ends meet. He came to Christ as a child of God in, at the age of 27 and found great comfort in the scriptures. And one of the scriptures that meant a lot to him was this in Lamentations 3. If the Lord's, it is the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He was away from home on a missions trip and he often wrote poems, poetry. And one of his friends, William Runyon, was a relatively known, unknown musician at that day. He had several poems, they exchanged letters with several poems and one day Runyon found one of Thomas's poems. It was so moving to him, he decided to compose a musical score for it. And he accompanied the lyrics called, Great is Thy Faithfulness. In 1923, it was published. Several years, it never gained recognition, never gained recognition, until it was discovered by Moody Bible Institute professor, who loved it so much, he requested it be sung every chapel service. It was not until 1945 when George Beverly Shea began to sing Great is Thy Faithfulness at Billy Graham Evangelistic Crusades that the hymn was heard around the world. Thomas Chisholm died at the age of 94 in 1960. During his lifetime, he wrote more than 1,200 poems and many hymns 
couple of which are owed to be like thee and living for Jesus. As we look at these verses, I call this to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord is never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. Let's bring it down together. A few, few items of application. There are a few things that give us evidence of the reality of life in Christ than a believer. A believer who truly exhibits genuine peace in trying circumstances. These are the byproduct of knowing a faithful God and believing his promises. The first application is this. We have assurance he cares because he is a loving and good Heavenly Father. You can always trust in him. He's always good. He's always loving. Number two, without a personal relationship with God, it's impossible to truly believe he is in control. There's no hope if you don't know Jesus as your personal Savior. Number three, we believe he is working everything together for good for his people because he is sovereign and wise. Regardless of what happens in your life, God is faithful and true. He is sovereign and he's wise. And he takes you through the dark room sometimes. But you know what? It's for the best for you. It's for your good and for his glory. And number four, we have peace when things around us are falling apart because his faithfulness is great. Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer. As we pray, I want you to consider your life. Are you going through times of trial and testing? Wondering, where is God? Where is God? I can tell you he's with you as a child of God. I pray today that you will come to him. If you need someone to pray with you, Brother Joe, Brother Tim, or myself will be here ready to pray with you and show you from the word of God how great God really is. Lord Jesus, I pray that you use your word. Lord, we acknowledge the fact that even though times are dark and dim and things don't go as we plan, great is your faithfulness. Oh God, my Father, there's no shadow of turning in you. Father, we love you. Bring glory to yourself through this time of worship. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.